Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Ungersargon. And this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So we're back for another episode. Uh, it is kind of the issue of the week, the issue of the moment, so to speak. Every American's televisions, their Twitter feeds, the internet is all just lighting up, both symbolically and I suppose tragically, literally speaking, with images of what is happening um, in the Middle East right now. Badi, why don't you kind of tell us a little bit about who we're going to have on today and why we're bringing them on at this present moment, what's actually going on out there? So I have to say, it's been a really hard week, and I think part of that is both because of, you know, watching the tragedy and the devastation unfold in Israel and in Gaza and just the human loss and the human toll, seeing uh, the streets of Israel itself break out in ethnic violence that we haven't seen in generations, um, devastating, extremely difficult to see and watch. But to a lesser degree, it's been really devastating to watch the conversation around the conflict unfold on social media for me personally, just seeing the maximalist terms that people are using to discuss it, the dehumanization of the other. It's been really hard. And I think that people increasingly are not in spaces with people they disagree with on this or any other topic, despite the fact that there are some baseline things we can all agree on, those things are really getting lost in the shuffle. And so we felt it was really important to bring on two people from different corners of the world and different sides of this conflict to debate it. And we were so thrilled to be able to get David Brog, director of the Maccabee Task Force, who used to work for Christians United for Israel, Kufai, and Omar Badar, member of the National Policy Council at the Arab American Institute, to come on the show and debate the current conflict, as well as, of course, the history of the conflict, because you can never talk about the conflict without the history, <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> um, so we are really looking forward to having them on and talking to them. Let's take it to a quick commercial break. This is the Debate and Newsweek podcast. On the other side, David Bragg and Omar Badar. Welcome back to The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. We could not be more thrilled to have two people who I admire so much. We have David Brog, the director of the Maccabee Task Force and formerly of Christians United for Israel. And we have Omar Badar, a member of the National Policy Council at the Arab American Institute. This is such a difficult topic to debate. Emotions run really high. Um, and we're just thrilled to have you both. So I want to open with something a little counterintuitive for a debate. I'm wondering if you can each tell us something that going into this, you are certain that the other agrees with you about. So let's start with you, David. What is something you're willing to go into this debate certain that Omar agrees with you about? Um, I would be certain that Omar agrees with me that uh, every life at risk in this conflict, Muslim, Jewish, or other, is precious Every human being at risk in this conflict is created in the image of an almighty God and has infinite value. And we have to do everything in our power to protect every innocent human life. Omar? Entire complete agreement. And I would simply add to that is that as an extension of this, to say that every human being in this entire situation is entitled to the exact same rights as everybody else, and that an outcome that would be satisfactory is one in which every Israeli and every Palestinian enjoys the same rights and the same freedoms as everyone else. So we're off to an amazing start already. <laughs> uh, that was really moving, actually. Um, I wonder if now we can jump into uh, an area of disagreement. So we're here to debate the current conflict in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And I wonder if you each could 
kind of define where you see yourselves, how you define yourselves. Would you call yourself pro-Israel, pro-Palestine, on the right, on the left? And then once you've done that, give us a snapshot of how you see the current conflict, the current escalation. So, Omar, let's start with you. Sure. Um, I consider myself left of center. I'm a pre- I understand that every person in the world has biases, and I understand that I am being a person of Palestinian origin, certainly come with that perspective in mind, although I don't consider myself as someone who presents the Palestinian perspective, because there's incredible diversity on the Palestinian side, on the Israeli side, and everywhere, and I don't think that any particular perspective can really be representative of one side or the other. And the way I try to come at this is primarily from a perspective that is grounded in human rights. All of the points that I try to make are grounded in what Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and even Israeli human rights organizations say, like B'Tselem, um, in order to say that what I see is there is a situation of fundamental inequality on the ground. There is a Human Rights Watch report that just came out a couple of weeks ago, outlining how Israel is imposing apartheid on Palestinians and how different groups of Palestinians are denied so many basic rights in so many different ways. Some are being pushed out of their homes. It's really ethnic cleansing. Some can't move from one city to another without having to go through Israeli barriers that control their lives. People in Gaza cannot access the outside world. This is really an unacceptable situation. And the only way we're going to achieve a just and lasting peace is through equality. And that comes by getting Israel to start seeing Palestinians as equal human beings who deserve the same rights as Israelis. And when that happens, that's, I think, when we start, when we're going to move in a much better direction. But as long as Israel feels entitled to give Israelis all the freedoms in the world and then keep Palestinians under the boot of military occupation and apartheid and oppression, then we're never going to move to a better direction. And this is just bound to continue to be violent and cost lives on both sides. And of course, disproportionately on the Palestinian side, given the imbalance of power where Israel holds all the keys, controls all the borders, has all the military forces, facing a largely defenseless population. Well, we knew when we got into details, we'd get into disagreement. And uh, so I'll share my perspective. Um, I would say I'm right of center, um, and I'm uh, staunchly uh, pro-Israel. But I do not see a conflict between being pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian and and pro-human rights. Um, but we've, we've gone back into the context, which is just as well. We could focus on what's happened the last week. But I think inevitably, you know, as Fitzgerald will, will say, we're, we're beaten back into the past. And so, you know, let's, let's do that. The way I see this conflict, big picture, is this is a tragic clash between two nationalisms, uh, Jewish nationalism, Zionism, and uh, what was Arab nationalism uh, before uh, 67 and what became Palestinian nationalism after 67. And in this conflict between nationalisms, neither side has been perfect. Both sides have made mistakes, yet I do see one overriding theme. And the overriding theme has been since the beginning of the Jewish national movement, there has been a recognition that during during the time when Jews were in exile, Jews have always lived in the land, but there's a, there a period when the Jewish population in the land of Israel had, had fallen, and the majority were Muslims who had moved in, Arabs who had moved in. There was a recognition that this other people was there, and the Jewish uh, nationalists, at every step of the national development of, of, of what were Muslim, uh, 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 Muslim subjects of the Ottoman Empire, Uh, later Arabs uh, and later Palestinians tried to recognize and compromise with 
this evolving nationalism. And so there was a recognition of the need to compromise. And that's why on five separate occasions, and, and Omar will disagree with me on some of this, uh, you know, we should get into those details. But on five separate occasions, uh, at, at a minimum, I can point to times when, when the Zionists, uh, later the Israelis, offered to share the land, split the land with the Arabs who became the Palestinians. 1937, 1947, 1967, 2000, and 2008. Each time the Muslims, later Arabs, later Palestinians of the land rejected those offers to split the land. And in 37, we were talking about a 70-30 split, not, not a 50-50 split. 30% to the Jews, 70% to the Arabs. Each time they rejected that, and that's because I, I would argue, unfortunately, the Palestinian national movement was hijacked and has been led by, there's only been three leaders, the Mufti of Jerusalem, Hajimina Husseini, Yasser Arafat, and now Mahmoud Abbas. And each of them, in their own way, even though Abbas, more than the others, has voiced some acceptance of peace, each of them, in their own way, has refused to reconcile themselves to the justice of the Jewish presence in the land, to the justice of Jewish independence in the land, and to, and, and, and to the righteousness of, of this other side's claims. And so the Mufti simply rejected it out of hand, used violence as a tool against the Jews. Arafat the same. Abbas has acknowledged peace, at the same time denying the basis of peace, the justice of the Jewish presence. And I would argue that it is this Arab rejectionism that has driven the conflict over these years. Omar, definitely want to give you a chance to respond to that, obviously. But I do have a question here. Um, you know, David's talking about kind of a series of uh, rejectionist, uh, rejecting two state uh, offers. I'm sure some details about these various offers you, of course, would disagree with. But I want to read a quote here. I mean, this is, this is not, you know, this is a real quote. I mean, in 1974, uh, PLO chairman Yasser Arafat said, quote, we shall never stop until we can go back home and Israel is destroyed. The goal of our struggle is the end of Israel, and there can be no compromise or mediations. We don't want peace. We want victory. Is that the, the PA Abbas stance to this day, or has it, gotten, has it shifted over the years? And how does, that, how does your answer to that question affect how you would respond to David's view of the decades-long conflict? Sure. Um, I think that all actually fits together very well here. So I'll, I'll give you the modern example of that statement. There is somebody that I'm sure you people know. Um, Mark Lamont Hill recently gave a speech at the United Nations a couple of years ago and said what we need is freedom for Palestine from the river to the sea. And there was immediately an accusation that that was a call to violence against Israel, which I think is absurd because ultimately what we're talking about, what, what, what people were talking about before the establishment of the state of Israel, victory meant equality for everyone in the land. What, what was being objected to is the idea of a Jewish exclusivist state. That was what's being proposed. So the Palestinians did reject an offer for a two-state solution. The percentages are off that David gave because he includes Jordan, but Jordan is not where Palestinians lived. And so when Palestinians only live from the west of the Jordan River, that's the area we're talking about. What was offered in 1947 is more than 50% would be given to be a Jewish state at a time when the Jewish population in Palestine owned less than 7% of the land. So to make a much larger area a Jewish state inherently entailed dispossessing Palestinians of the right to live on their own land. And that's the fundamental problem. Now, conversations about two states, I think, become really relevant in 1988, when the Palestinians officially made the historic compromise of accepting Israel's existence on 78% of historic Palestine, nearly 80%. That's Israel as recognized by the United Nations. 
And in return, that started the peace process with the idea that Israel was going to withdraw from the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, which are the occupied territories that Israel, that Israel is obligated to withdraw from, according to international law, as a mountain of UN resolutions has made clear. And what Israel did in response instead is to spend the entire so-called peace process expanding more and more settlements throughout those Palestinian territories that make up a mere 22% of historic Palestine. And so, yes, there have been offers made to Palestinians to accept a so-called state. You know, one of Benjamin Netanyahu's allies back in 1996 said, basically, we're going to give them some scraps of land. They can call it a state or they can call it fried chicken if they want to. And it was understood that what was being offered to Palestinians fell drastically short of what anybody could consider to be a viable Palestinian state. So much so that in 2000, which is when the most generous offer that Israel made for Palestinian statehood was made, Israel's foreign minister at the time, Shlomo Ben-Ami, said that had he been Palestinian, he would not have accepted it. Israel is essentially going to be in control of everything. And if Israel was genuinely interested in a two-state solution throughout the peace process, they would not have spent the entire peace process expanding settlements throughout the Palestinian territories, taking the settler population from 100,000 now all the way up to some 800,000 and entrenching its grasp on East Jerusalem and making it clear that they're never going to leave it in violation of international law. So that entire concept of who's rejecting a two-state solution here, I think is a little bit backwards. David, we're very excited to hear your response to Omar, and obviously we have more questions. Stick with us. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, you know, we don't want to spend so much more time, per se, on kind of uh, the arcane details of the history here. There is a current very live dispute uh, happening on the ground. We want to get into the, into the very thorny details of what's happening right now. But it, it, I think it is worth spending at least a little more time on the history because the history is so relevant to the present. So, David, I want to throw it over to you. Omar mentioned the offer at Camp David in 2000 here from uh, then Prime Minister Ehud Barak to Yasser Arafat. Um, President Bill Clinton, um, you know, who's a centrist Democrat, um, I, after Camp David, he he said, quote, Arafat did not negotiate in good faith. Indeed, he did not negotiate at all. He just kept saying no to every offer, never making any counterproposals of his own. Um, why, from your perspective, have the Palestinians never accepted the various two-state offers? So there's, there's, a, there's a lot I'd like to respond to, but I'll start with your question, Josh. Um, it's what I said earlier, um, that there's been a fundamental failure uh, among those who have led the Palestinian national movement. There were plenty of Palestinian nationalists who wanted compromise and wanted peace. Uh, unfortunately, Hajimin al-Husseini murdered most of them. Uh, Yasser Arafat did the same. What you were left with were leaders who fundamentally did not reconcile themselves to the presence uh, of, of Jews in the land and the justice of Israel's independence. And therefore, even if they mouthed words, and to this day, Mahmoud Abbas will mouth words about peace. But if you mouth the words about peace while, while treating the Israelis not as an indigenous people with rights in the land that, that we must make painful compromises with, but rather as foreign invaders with no rights, then you educate your people to reject peace. 
If the narrative were true, if the Israelis were foreign invaders with no rights, then I would fight them with everything I had too. I wouldn't compromise with people with no rights in the land and no justice in the land. You have to educate people for peace. You have to, you have to, you have to lead your people towards a tough peace. Unfortunately, the, the people who have seized leadership of the Palestinians um, have taken, taken it in a different direction. I, I do just want to, without getting into everything Omar said, I do just want to push back on one uh, important point. The UN decided, I, I, earlier I spoke of a 70-30 of a split. It was more like 80-20, 20% to the Jews, 80 to the Palestinians. That was 1937, the Peel Commission. It did not include Jordan at all. It was, it was, it was west of the Jordan River. In 47, the UN did offer a 50-50 split, although Israel's 50%, the Jewish 50% was 70% desert. But it did offer a 50-50 split. The Jews accepted it, danced in the streets. This idea that they wanted to ethnically cleanse the Arabs out of their 50% is simply untrue. They danced in the streets and wanted peace. They were attacked the very next day by the Arabs of Palestine. Of the 800 Arab villages in, in, in west of the Jordan River, half of them, 400, sent their men out to destroy local Jewish neighborhoods, towns, and cities. They started a war to destroy the Jewish state. The Arab states neighboring Israel later joined in that war. It was in this war that Israel did not want and desperately sought to avoid that Palestinians fled, were forced out by Israel facing terrible strategic dilemmas because they had a small supply of manpower facing a domestic attacks from 400 Arab villages and now looming attacks from neighboring Arab states. They, they, they did not have the manpower to, to secure some strategic villages. This all could have been avoided had the Arabs of Palestine gone a different path and accepted Israel and accepted compromise. Had they not attacked Israel, there would not have been one Arab refugee. The refugee problem was a result of their war of annihilation and aggression. So while we can all talk about the tragedy of the refugees, I do think it's critical we go back to cause and effect. Um, but this is all, these are all symptoms of the same problem, uh, which is the refusal of the leaders of the Palestinians to accept compromise and the legitimacy of the other side. The good news is, and I'd like to get here eventually, we're seeing a new generation of Arab leaders, both in the Gulf and uh, on, on the West Bank, who don't want to annihilate uh, uh, Israel or the Jews, but actually want to join hands, develop the area. And, and, and achieve peace for all involved. And that's what gives me hope for the future. All right, David, I got to push back on a, a few of the things you said. I know Omar will for sure want to, but you keep bringing us back to this question of um, Palestinians rejecting the Jewish claim, the justice of the Jewish claim, um, some sort of, I guess, imaginary justification for Jewish rights. But the Israelis are actually depriving Palestinians of actual civil rights right now. So it seems to me a little bit interesting, and I would like to hear you respond to this, to talk about the conflict as if it stems from what's going on in the Palestinians' brains um, when there are actual civil rights abuses being perpetrated in the West Bank, certainly, um, in the Gaza, very much arguably, um, and and and. At, I also want you to respond to another thing, which is you, you're saying there's a new crop of young leadership in the West Bank that is certainly not because Israel has helped cultivate um, a new generation of civil leaders. Israel has really penalized nonviolent resistance in the West Bank. 
um, to a lesser degree than violent resistance, but still in many ways, you know, even BDS, I mean, however you feel about it, Israel calls it economic terrorism. You know, there's this slippage between violence and nonviolence, even in the Israeli response to different forms of resistance. So I would ask you first to address the question of civil rights abuses and then to, to talk a little bit about, well, how would you recommend Palestinians stand up for themselves? How would you recommend they legitimately air their grievances? Yeah, and I, uh, apologies, Omar, I'm not filibustering. Uh, I was asked the question. Um, so look, um, there would be no Israeli presence uh, in the West Bank and Gaza if the Palestinian leaders would have accepted the compromise of 1937. There would be no Israeli presence in the West Bank and Gaza had Palestinian leaders accepted the compromise of 47. Same goes for 67. Same goes for 2000. Same goes for 2008. Actually, 2008 was the most generous offer made to the Palestinians. Israel would have been happy to end the occupation for a true, real peace with the Palestinians. When that did not happen, when the generous offer of 2000, and I know we, we didn't get into details there, but when that generous offer was met, not with a yes and not with a counter offer, but with the second intifada, a wave of suicide bombings that murdered over a thousand Israelis, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian, and mangled and maimed another 2,000 Israelis, Jewish, Muslim, and Christian. Israelis learned a lesson, and they realized we don't have a real partner here to negotiate with. They tried something else in 2005. They said, all right, we don't have a partner who will agree to take this land, who will agree to run this land without turning it into a terrorist base. Fine, we'll just pull out unilaterally, right? You don't want Israelis you know, in Palestinian territories? You see this as a human rights violation? We'll pull out entirely of Gaza. It's what Ariel Sharon called a down payment on peace. We'll show the virtues of, of an Israeli withdrawal. Gaza will become a Singapore on the Mediterranean. That will create a virtuous cycle whereby we'll now have a partner for peace in the West Bank. We all know what happened when Israel left Gaza and pulled out every last soldier and, and civilian in 2005. Hamas took over. Hamas turned it into a terrorist base. Missile fire into Israel from Gaza did not decrease after Israel's withdrawal. It dramatically increased after Israel's withdrawal. And we're seeing the tragic ramifications of that to the present day. So I would say this, if you have a problem with Israel's military presence uh, in the West Bank, no longer in Gaza, um, fine. But, but I, I don't understand why you would point the finger of blame at Israel for that. I would point the finger of blame of those who have turned down every offer of compromise to date. Omar, the floor is yours. Oh, I hope I will be given enough time to adequately respond to all of this. Um, I don't want to dive too deep back into the history, but Israeli historians have documented that there was a deliberate plan of ethnic cleansing that led to the expulsion of more than 750,000 Palestinians out of their homes. Now, if you want to dispute that, there is a very easy solution for this. If Israel did not intend to drive them out, then let them come back. But of course, Israel doesn't let them come back, which is really all the evidence that makes it really obvious that they do not want them there. That's one point. Another is about the occupation of the West Bank and Palestinian responsibility. Again, if Israel were serious about being interested in a two-state solution and withdrawing from the occupied West Bank, they would have not spent the entire peace process building more and more settlements throughout the West Bank, entrenching the occupation, building roads that Palestinians cannot drive on, 
depriving Palestinians of 80% of the water that comes out of the West Bank. It's directed towards Israeli settlements and Israel, while Palestinians are left with 20% of their own water. This inequality was on full display throughout the entire so-called peace process. So even if you want to dispute whatever details happen at what offer and who said what, we have a reality where Israel was capturing and expanding and entrenching its control of the West Bank at a time when they were saying that they were interested in a two-state solution where they might end that occupation. So it's just belied by the fact the entire so-called peace process was a charade. It was Israel pretending to be negotiating for an end to the occupation while on the ground expanding and entrenching that occupation. That is a very, very critical point. And then the entire, it's, by the way, it's not just the Palestinian leadership, even under Arafat, but also the entire Arab League presented something called the Arab Peace Initiative that offered to normalize relations with Israel in exchange for Israel withdrawing from the occupied Palestinian territories as it is obligated to under international law. If this was a bluff, Israel could easily call it by fully withdrawing from the occupied Palestinian territories. Leave the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem and see what the response would be. Now, if you want to say that Israel withdrew from Gaza and look what happened, I mean, that sounds like a clever line, but it's, it's simply does not reflect what is actually unfolding on the ground. Israel never left Gaza. They pulled settlers out of Gaza, and those are two very different things. Israel continued to be fully in control of the Gaza Strip. They control who goes in and out. They control what goes in. Palestinians cannot trade with the outside world in Gaza. If they try to go out fishing and cross a certain line, the Israeli Navy shoots at them. Palestinians in Gaza are completely held hostage under Israeli control. And so that is the fundamental violence that Palestinians are under occupation live under every single day. I mean, when we talk about who started this round of violence or that, Israel's posture is not defensive. The United Nations says that Israel is an occupying power, including in Gaza, even though they pulled out the settlers. And the reason is, is because Israel is in control of Palestinian lives and does not allow them to flourish. And that's really what we're talking about, is how do you expect that people, Palestinians are left with the option of either being passive in the face of entrenching occupation, and allow the ethnic cleansing that's happening in East Jerusalem in this neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah to make things a little bit more current, to either accept that and just sit back and let it happen, or if they choose any form of violence, if it's, as you mentioned, if it's boycotts, then that's economic terrorism. And if they go to the International Court of Justice to complain about Israeli war crimes, the US gets in the way of that and says, this is unhelpful unilateral action. And then if somebody responds with violence, Israel uses that as an excuse to carry out massacres as we're witnessing in successive bombings of the Gaza Strip, where human rights organizations, not my word, it's not my word against David's, the words of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International and Beth Salem and UN investigators say that Israel engages in reckless and deliberate killing of civilians. They have reckless and discriminate bombing of civilian areas, and the result is civilians die in huge numbers. And then you also have Israeli soldiers who admit to these crimes. In Lebanon in 2006, there was a famous Israeli commander who said, quote, quoted, by the way, in the Israeli press, saying, what we did was insane and monstrous. We dropped more than a million cluster bombs throughout South Lebanon all over the villages. And the same now with a group called Breaking the Silence, where Israeli soldiers step forward and commit to admit to the crimes that they were encouraged to commit while they were in Gaza and other places. So that's just the reality that we have to confront, and we can't just dance around it by talking about what offer was made and just make vague references to what territories Israel left, when in reality that occupation has never actually ended. So, David, obviously, 
we really do have the transition to what's currently going on the ground very soon. But uh, I just always feel like there's like, <laughs> I don't want to give someone not the opportunity to respond to that. So David, I, I actually have a kind of a simple, straightforward question for you. I think you're in a very good position to give a uh, perhaps compelling response to this question. Um, Omar's talking about um, Human Rights Watch with the so-called apartheid label. Um, the, the, as we all know, the UN Human Rights Council condemns Israel more than the rest of the world combined, whether it's North Korea, Syria. Talking here about all these kind of um, you know far-left NGOs, and breaking the silence. Why does the quote-unquote international community hate Israel so much? And is there any compelling reason for that whatsoever other than sheer Jew hatred? I appreciate it. Omar began the session acknowledging that that he may have some biases as a Palestinian. A fair is fair. I may have some biases as a as a Zionist, as a Jew. Um, but let's also acknowledge the, the entrenched biases in the United Nations, where there has been a supermajority. Um, you know, it changed over time. It was the Soviets and, and third world countries that, that were voted as a block with with, with Muslim, the Muslim and Arab countries, of which there are 22, 23. Now, you know, that, that began, then there was a non-aligned bloc that voted in unity with the 22, 23 Arab countries. There's a supermajority here that's stacked against the one and only Jewish state. And then, Josh, as you know, there are now, there are now political, political biases getting in on the mix. And so increasingly, people see themselves as saying, if I believe in human rights, I have to take certain positions against Israel. Um, and for the Palestinians that are often starkly at odds with the facts. Um, and to, to get back to the, the current conflict, uh, Omar you know, mentioned massacres before, which I, is, is, a, is a word I um, have a big problem with. Um, what Hamas is doing, firing uh, thousands of rockets at Israeli population centers, is textbook terrorism. There are those who say one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, those people are moral idiots. Uh, terrorism is a defined term. It is, it is targeting civilians with violence to achieve a political end. That is what Hamas does when it fires its rockets at Israel population centers. I do hope Amar would condemn that terrorism. Um, unfortunately, they also do, there's a second human rights violation here. They fire from civilian areas. They turn Gaza's population into human shields. And they know that it will either deter Israel from responding, and it often does. Israel has often repeatedly aborted missions when they see civilians entering a targeted building, or they see a targeted car going into a civilian areas. Hamas militants know that, that if they feel they're being followed by a drone, drive into a civilian area, it will often save your life. Israel will divert the missile. But some, sometimes when Israel goes after these, these terrorists and it tries its best to give warnings, to leaflet, to notify, we saw people leaving buildings, this conflict, that Israel has given them fair warning. There are, there are, Israel makes mistakes, number one, but you cannot equate targeting civilians intentionally and using Gaza civilians as human shields with the fact that Israel, with the best of intentions and the greatest of warnings, may sometimes make mistakes. And I just want to add this. I, 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 when the smoke settles here, we're likely to find in this conflict what we found in almost every past conflict, which is the Gaza authorities issue numbers of dead, including children. What we often find at the end of the day is it wasn't Israel that killed the majority of those innocent civilians. It was Hamas. Because it's estimated that about a third of Hamas rockets fall short of their intended Israeli civilian victims and instead land on and harm Palestinian civilian victims. And so those who assume that these very tragic 
numbers. And I know Omar and I agree on the tragedy of the numbers. Um, are necessarily Israel's fault, I think, are ignoring moral agency, ignoring the double human rights violation uh, and terrorism of Hamas, and ultimately ignoring Hamas's role in, in the tragic deaths uh, in Gaza. Why don't we kick it to a quick break here? When we come back, we're going to finally, after all this time, I think it's appropriate now to dive into what is really happening right now um, in May 2021 on the ground. We'll kick it off with getting both of your kind of perspectives, your kind of view as to kind of what is happening at this present time. Then we'll kind of get into a back and forth on that. So once again, you're listening to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. Our guests are David Brog and Omar Badar. We're debating the current conflict in the Middle East. Uh, We haven't gotten to the current part yet, though. So we're going to turn our attention to that now. Omar, why don't you bring us back in? David just said a bunch of things um, about uh, about Hamas, about Gaza, about how uh, warfare ends up happening there. So why don't you respond to that and tell us as well how you see the current conflict that's unfolding? Well, let me start by agreeing with David that the rockets that Hamas fires indiscriminately towards Israeli towns is just absolutely indefensible. And human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, do consider them war crimes. So that much is not in dispute. I simply have the consistency then to just look at Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Palestinian areas, Palestinian civilian areas, that are also described as war crimes by international human rights organizations and deal with it with the same consistency. And of course, Israel being far more powerful their terrorism is far greater. And there are cases when Palestinian protesters, you know, there was the the March for Return out of Gaza not that long ago, and Israeli snipers were picking off journalists and medics. And all of this is just documented by everyone who has any kind of credibility or neutrality on this topic. So just we should have moral consistency on the question of terrorism. We should be against the killing of all civilians, but we should not make excuses for one side when when it engages in behavior that is documented to be indiscriminate towards civilians. On the question of human shields, which I think is a really important one, we should differentiate things a little bit. There is no question that Hamas operates in civilian areas. You can, that's you know part of a reflection of the fact that there is an imbalance of power here. Hamas doesn't have fighter jets or tanks or a proper military. And so when you're facing a proper military, every guerrilla force in the world has hid in civilian areas. But that's not the legal definition of, of of human shields. Human shields is when you physically hold a civilian hostage in front of you as you go into battle to prevent the other side from shooting you. And the only party that has been documented indisputably indisputably to have used human shields is actually the Israeli military. It was standard practice in the Second Intifada until the Israeli Supreme Court in 2005 said that the Israeli military had to stop using Palestinian civilians as human shields. And the Israeli military establishment at the time protested and appealed against it, but of course they lost the appeal. And even though now it's no longer policy officially by Israel to use Palestinians as human shields, in successive Israeli assaults on Gaza, Israeli soldiers have been caught using Palestinian children as human shields. And in one case, the two Israeli soldiers who used an 11-year-old Palestinian boy as a human shield got what Human Rights Watch described as a slap on the wrist in terms of punishment. You know, their ranking was reduced or or some, some sort of thing. So yes, human, using human shields is absolutely abominable. And when you have one military force that has a really thorough record of having used it, I think we should also address that as well when we talk about it. It's, it's a really tragic situation right now where 
Gazans have nowhere to go, right? Even in cases where Israel drops leaflets and tells people that we're going to bomb this area or that area, Gaza is very densely populated and it's under siege where Palestinians cannot even leave. So you can't just absolve yourself of responsibility for the death that you're creating because you've taken some minimal measures that human rights organizations have considered all inadequate. You have to deal with the fundamental reality that there is not freedom for Palestinians who live in Gaza. And we're going to be stuck where it is inevitable that people who live without freedom will inevitably act out. And when they act out, there's going to be death on both sides. And people, who, you know, it's the same as with South Africa, right? There was terrorism against white people during the apartheid era. But any person who was interested in solving the problem understood that you had to end apartheid. It wasn't just about condemning the terrorism of one party. And this is no different here. You have to deal with the fact that Palestinians have no freedom. And when they do have freedom, then we can start moving towards reconciliation. So, David, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Um, specifically, I would love to hear you speak to this argument you hear a lot on the left, that there is a fundamental difference between the amount of power uh, that Israel has at its disposal and the amount of power that the Palestinians have at their disposal, and that that influences the moral valence of the conflict. So the way I've seen it most recently phrased, you know, if your opponent can't truly harm you, how much force is it morally legitimate to use against them? That's kind of the argument that uh, Trevor Noah made on The Daily Show. Um, and so I would love to hear you speak to that question, because I think it actually gets at a lot of what Omar was speaking about and more generally how you view the current moment. Uh, I think how powerful you are is irrelevant. All that matters is how morally you use that power. There is no country on planet Earth that would allow its citizens to be targeted with, with, with terrorist missiles and not try to stop the rocket fire upon its civilian areas. It's, not only, it, it's a moral responsibility of governments to protect its citizens. And again, let's be honest, these are Israelis, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian. An Arab father and his daughter were killed by a Hamas rocket landing in Lod. Trevor Noah might want to analogize that to your little brother giving you a kick. I do not. Those are precious human lives gone because of Hamas terrorism. This is not a laughing matter. And so no country on earth would allow this to happen. I find it rich that uh, Turkish President Erdogan uh, saying that Israel has to be punished for, for responding like this. When one Syrian shell landed in Turkey in 2012, uh, they overshot Syrian rebels in northern Syria. He responded with a barrage that, that killed 20 Syrian soldiers and proudly declared, we will not sit idly by and let Syrian shells land in our territory. Of course he wouldn't. No one would. So Israel has an obligation to defend its citizens. And the only question is, does it use its power morally? If we agree Israel has a right to respond, then how do you take out the Hamas terrorists that, that Omar acknowledges are in, entrenched in civilian areas? And I think the only way to do that morally is to do what Israel does, which is to leaflet, to warn, to give advance notice. If only Hamas would give advance notice before they blew up civilian areas, we'd be a lot happier. And then ultimately to target the Hamas militants. And while they don't do it perfectly, and there are inquiries made and, and mistakes made, and Israel does its best to learn from mistakes. It, this is a serious process. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a phony process. Israel has this obligation to defend its citizens, um, and it does so to the best of its abilities. And compared to other 
armies that have been engaged in the very difficult work of counterterrorism. Uh, Israel's record is, is, is quite impressive and quite stunning, so much so that even people like Richard Goldstone, who have issued these reports condemning Israel's behavior in Gaza, when they actually learned more about who was responsible for the damage they witnessed when they visited Gaza, they retracted and said, had I known then what I know now, I wouldn't have written this report blaming Israel. So in our remain time left, let's segue a little away from kind of military tactics and moral valence and things like that. Let's talk about what is what is literally happening. I still feel like we haven't like actually gone into that. Um, this is this particular kind of round of recriminations and escalations. I mean, there's like any number of factors that seem to be at work here. Um, it's a very, very complex situation. Um, so I, I would actually be curious to get both of your ideas. And Omar, we can, we can start with you. What actually started this latest round of escalations? Why, why is this happening? Like, why are, why are Americans seeing this on their televisions now? So on principle, I think the starting point is that Israel is an occupying power. That to me is the initiation of everything. And that status quo is violence against Palestinians. And it's only a matter of time before we see another configuration. But what really kicked off this particular cycle is the fact that Israel wants to throw Palestinians out of their homes in occupied East Jerusalem. I know a lot of people try to talk about it as if it's some kind of real estate dispute that the Israeli courts can handle, but we are talking about East Jerusalem, which is occupied Palestinian territory that Israel is obligated to withdraw from under international law, as was repeated by a mountain of UN resolutions and the International Court of Justice. So the idea that Israel has jurisdiction to be throwing Palestinians out of their homes to give those homes to Israeli settlers is just fundamentally wrong. They simply just do not have the right to do that. And that is what caused a lot of protests in the Palestinian territories, in Jerusalem in particular. And then it became clear that there was a lot of attention to the fact that this ethnic cleansing was about to happen. And Netanyahu needed a way to distract the world from the attention on the ethnic cleansing that is impending. And that is why Israeli forces then started behaving brutally towards Palestinian protesters, beating them relentlessly in videos that just spread throughout all of social media, and eventually went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the holiest site for Muslims in Palestine, where they followed protesters in there and were setting, up, were setting off stun grenades multiple nights in a row, knowing full well that that would probably provoke some kind of reaction from an Islamist militant group. And that's exactly what happened, and that's why we are where we are. Now, just a comment to what David had mentioned about, of course, no country would ever accept rockets being fired in. Absolutely. I agree with that completely. And if I were minding my own business and then my neighbor shot a rocket into my house, I would be furious and I would probably react to it very aggressively as well. But when the starting point is that I have my neighbor locked in my basement, don't let them get food, ruining their lives, really not allowing them to breathe fresh air, not allowing them to get clean water and taking their property away from them, and then a rocket gets fired at me, my priority then becomes to fix my own behavior and then find a way to sit down and make peace with my opponent. Ultimately, there is not a military solution to this conflict. After all the bombing and death from, I don't know, what is this, the fourth, fifth round of, of Israel bombing Gaza, when the dust settles, we're still going to be stuck in the same situation, only with a lot more dead Palestinians and Israelis. And ultimately, it's only going to be a matter of time before we have another round of violence because Palestinians will continue to be under occupation and apartheid, and Israel will continue to be the power that holds their lives in its hands and does not afford them freedom, justice, or rights. Well, David, a lot there for you to respond to, obviously, so the floor is yours. Um, to, to take Omar's analogy uh, of, of the house in the basement, uh, Israel tried to open up the basement door and, uh, and share the house. Uh, uh, their neighbors came out, stabbed them, and went back in the basement. 
It's a tragic fact. Um, I want to take this Temple Mount because to me this is a microcosm of the entire conflict. Okay, the Temple Mount is the holiest site in Judaism and the third holiest site in Islam. It's precious to both religions. When Jordan uh, conquered and occupied the Temple Mount in 1948 in its effort to annihilate Israel, um, they first of all they and, and the word ethnically cleansed. Uh, I take issue with Omar's use of it here. Uh, Jordan ethnically cleansed Jews from their homes and their neighborhoods. Every Jew was expelled from territory that Jordan occupied, um, and Jordan maintained this occupation and this ethnic cleansing from 1948 until 1967. No Jews were allowed. To, to go on or pray on their holiest site, the Temple Mount. Israel liberated the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in 1967. But did they come in and say, okay, now we're going to run our holiest site, the Temple Mount. No Muslims are allowed because we were excluded when, when the Jordanians, when the Muslims controlled it. No. For the sake of peace, they actually said, although we've just liberated our holiest place, we're going to give control back to the Muslim waqf that ran it under the Jordanians. And if the Muslim waqf tells us that it's offensive to Muslims that Jews pray on their holiest site, the Temple Mount, then we, the Israeli government, will ban Jews from praying at their holiest site, the Temple Mount. Jews are not allowed to even pray on the Temple Mount. It is under the control of Muslims. Jewish prayer is not allowed. But the Israelis said, please just let us let Jews visit certain parts of the Temple Mount at certain times. And that's been the status quo. Unfortunately, rumors spread that some right-wing Israelis were going to take advantage of this right to visit certain parts of the Temple Mount at certain times. And thousands of Palestinians went up to the Temple Mount, and we've seen the photos, it's well documented, they had piles of rocks waiting to attack these visitors. So what did Israel do? It banned the Jewish visitors. Not only is Jewish prayer banned, when tensions were rising, it banned the Jewish visitors to maintain the peace. But now you have thousands of, of hot-headed young men on the Temple Mount, piles of rocks. They didn't want to let them go to waste. They instead attacked a police station and people down below. That's when Israel did, again, what any nation would do. It went in to restore the peace. But when you understand the context and how very far Israel has gone, to maintain the peace on the Temple Mount. Now, very much it's curtailed the Jewish right to prayer, and in this case, the Jewish right to visit to maintain the peace. It's hard for me to look at these snapshots of Israeli police up there and blame Israel. Again, if you take a step back and look at what prompted uh, Israel's response in Gaza, if you take a step back and look at, what, look at what prompted Israel's presence in the Temple Mount, it's very hard to blame Israel, but of course, cynical politicians in the Palestinian Authority and Hamas have used this in an effort to compete to show who can be harder on Israel and who can be more violent towards Israel. And the cynical politicians do what they do. Uh, what gives me hope for the future, and I hope we can get back to this, is, is what non-politicians are doing, what entrepreneurs are doing, what hoteliers are doing, what restaurateurs are doing, um, to develop what could be a, a, a very beautiful area uh, Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, and Israel. So we got to wrap it up. Um, I have to say, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it so much, the fact of it as much as the content of it. I think it's safe to say neither of you changed the other's mind. But I wonder if you could each come up with something you're hoping the other will take away from this conversation, something small, something short, that short of having actually changed each other's minds, something that you hope the other will be thinking about in the coming weeks as these conversations keep going and as we each try to expand our horizons and talk to more people about what's happening. Let's start with you, David. 
the greatest enemy of, of, of hate and prejudice is, is actually meeting the other. Um, um, I, I, I disagree with Omar uh, deeply, but I, I like Omar. It's been a pleasure to meet you. Um, I'd like to have a beer with you if you, if you drink beer. I don't know your religious practice. Um, and, and this just highlights the tragedy uh, when we other the other, when we don't know the other, and when we allow these narratives to dominate what ultimately uh, is, is humanity. And so it just, um, uh, what I take away of this is a reminder that the stakes are high, that the people involved are all precious human beings created in the image of God. This is a tragedy. And, and while I don't think either, uh, either of us will abandon what we see as the justice here, um, I just do hope that, that talking to one another, being with one another, um, can produce a, a virtuous cycle, um, very different from the one we're seeing right now. Uh, we've seen the beginnings of this virtuous cycle with the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with, with Sudan, with Morocco, and, and with many Palestinians who, who are you know, joining with Israelis in venture capital and the high tech and startups. And the more that we can do, uh, the better, and the less fighting we can do, the better. Certainly would be happy to have a beer with you, David. Um, although I think it's a point of emphasis that as much as people meeting each other across lines of divide and talking is incredibly important. I think, you know, dehumanization of the other in, in, in times of conflict is, is certainly common. I do think that this is ultimately a political injustice that is not just a cultural misunderstanding or, or a lack of, of sort of people knowing each other. And I know that there is this really good quote by Stephen Hawking, I believe, that says, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance, it is the illusion of knowledge. And I think that people who come at an issue when they're new to it, it's much easier to have a conversation and explore what's actually happening. But when people have such strong feelings that sometimes could be erroneous, it's much more difficult for them to really consider a new perspective. And I think in this case, my hope would be that you really just take some time to simply consider the possibility that even though you've been involved in this issue for a very long time, and that even though you have very strong feelings about it, understandably, to simply explore the possibility of what if I'm wrong, and to look at some of the reporting that comes out of human rights organizations with the open possibility that all of these organizations are not united in some kind of conspiracy against Israel, but that maybe what they say has some merit, and to just simply be open to it when you read it. Right, right back at you, my friend. Thanks. David Bragg, Omar Badar, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys both very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And with that, we've now heard from David Bragg and Omar Badar on the current situation with Israel and the Palestinians. And we hope you've had a great time listening to this. I mean, we had a really, really, really fun time hosting it. And I know it was edifying for the listeners. So again, this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. Hope you had a great time. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. Email us at thedebate at newsweek.com, and we will see you next time.